Less than two weeks have passed since the tragedy at the station nightclub claimed nearly a hundred lives, with several more to follow in the coming months. The state attorney general's office is giving top priority to the incident, and the media still cover it every day. Survivors and families of victims are asking, who caused this? Who said these conditions were okay? And who is ultimately to blame? for our losses. I'm Tim Coleman. I'm Jeff Moss. And I'm Tyler J. Thomas. Together we will explore and discuss these events from the perspective of over 30 years of combined locksmith and door hardware experience. This is The Three Tumblers. Now, the conclusion of the station nightclub fire, years after. Six weeks after. Jeff and Michael Derdarian received notice from the state of Rhode Island that since they did not carry workers' compensation insurance on their employees, they are being fined $1 million. The brothers appeal the largest fine of its kind in state history. Ten weeks after. Ninety-six people died on the night of February 20, 2003. Three more died in the hospital days and weeks later. On May 4, 2003, Pamela Ann Gridadaria died at a hospital in Boston, becoming the 100th victim of the fire. A total of 230 people were injured. 41 children lost one or both parents in the blaze. 15 weeks after, members of the community and families of victims come together in an effort to make sure that their loved ones are never forgotten. They form the Station Nightclub Fire Memorial Foundation. Their mission is to ensure that our loved ones would receive a proper memorial upon the sacred ground where their lives were so tragically cut short. So that is a very sobering fact uh, that I didn't think about where you said uh, 41 children lost one or both parents in the blaze. Because uh, if you think about it, I'm sure there were plenty of couples that were there together. Uh, really makes you think uh, how bad of a situation this was. That was not something that I thought about. Also, here we see six weeks after the fire, the first fine is issued for not having workers' comp insurance. What business today would even think about being in operation without some sort of workman's comp insurance? It's pretty much required everywhere. And I wonder, I guess it was required at the time of the fire, but how often was it enforced? How often is it enforced today? But it just makes you wonder how are those employees going to pay their bills, their medical bills? Yeah, I guess a restaurant is not going to be checked up so often. I know with my business, the locksmith, in order to do work, in order to get paid, uh, a lot of my big clients, because of their insurance requirements, they want to vouch and validate that I have workers' comp and that I have, you know, insurance liability. Uh, auto, whatever it may be, I would have to imagine that uh, a restaurant uh, is taking its money mostly from uh, 
uh, its patrons who aren't going to be saying, hey, you, you carry workman's comp here? So I could see how they would fly under the radar. You don't require a uh, certificate of insurance and a W-9 when you go sit down at a place to eat or go to a bar. Right, and it's possible that those, some of those people could have been contractors and not even uh, actual employees. So workers kind of wouldn't have really made a difference. 19 weeks after, Don Carcieri, newly elected governor of Rhode Island, enacts the Comprehensive Fire Safety Act of 2003. In addition to essentially rewriting fire codes from scratch, it also requires sprinklers in every nightclub serving more than 150 people, giving them until July of 2006 to comply. On July 9, 2003, the Boston Globe reports that the National Fire Protection Association voted to recommend increasing the standards for nightclubs, including requiring sprinklers, crowd managers, and safety evaluations. Although there were a couple members who were reluctant to agree due to financial hardship for owners of older buildings, the changes passed. Six months after, the United States Occupational Safety and Health Administration fined DERCO, the legal entity of the Derdarian Brothers' business, $70,000 for the willful violation of installing an exit door that swung inwards. They also fined them for an additional $15,200 for six other violations considered, quote, serious. OSHA also hit Jack Russell Touring Incorporated with a fine to the tune of seven grand for failing to protect employees from fire hazards. Guitarist Ty Longley was the only band member to die in the fire, but other roadies and club staff were killed or injured. In the August 21, 2003 edition of the Boston Globe, Jeff Pine, lawyer for Jeffrey Dardarian, said that he would, quote, like to work out a reasonable resolution of the situation. Michael's lawyer didn't provide a comment, but Great White's attorney, Ed McPherson, said that what the band did wouldn't have caused anything by itself if the walls and ceiling hadn't been covered with foam. Nine months after. The long-haired, goateed band manager for Great White shows up for court on December 10th. Now with a business haircut and clean-shaven, Daniel Beakley is indicted on 200 counts of manslaughter, along with the Derderian brothers. Some people in the crowded room quietly cheered while others cried in relief that people were being held criminally accountable for the loss of their loved ones. But when they learned that the West Warwick fire inspector, Dennis LaRock, wasn't amongst the charged, there was anger. After all, he was the one that didn't test the sound-dampening foam that was glued all around the stage, the same foam that experts later called solid gasoline. I really doubt LaRock or his department had the capabilities to test the foam. I think, at most, he would have asked for something like a receipt or documentation on the foam to ensure that it was compliant. And if you watch the 48 Hours episode about this fire, the company that was making this foam wasn't really all that concerned with flame resistance. Uh, they kind of did some backdoor stuff. So who knows? They may have even embellished or lied on their paperwork, and he would have thought, oh, okay, well, this is compliant. 
Um, but I don't know if it's reasonable to place blame on him for this. Other things, yeah, uh, but but not this. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it's good that there's some accountability. I think we sort of alluded to this uh, in the beginning, and I did not know any that anything about this fire inspector. I'm kind of shocked that uh, he didn't get in trouble though, because it does not seem like it was a proper inspection. It almost and correct me if I'm wrong. The foam that they used was like shipping foam. Wasn't even for soundproofing. They just used a foam product that they, oh, it's foam, it'll be fine. Yeah, they they basically used packing foam and marketed it for different purposes, but it was all the same foam. Because I know there's soundproof, you know, being in audio world in a previous life, there's companies that all they do is make soundproofing stuff, and it's not just the same foam that you would ship a key machine. I also want to say that Dennis Larock had what is called qualified immunity. Uh, This is a constitutional law that came about in the 60s, basically to protect public servants from frivolous civil liabilities. It basically means that if a government employee, such as a fire inspector, police officer, firefighter, paramedic, whoever, acts in good faith and does not have any gross negligence, willful negligence, uh, that they cannot be held civilly liable. Now. That doesn't cover criminal charges. Obviously, if there are criminal charges, then you have intent, and that can open up the floodgates and rescind the qualified immunity. But at this point, Larocque is pretty well protected. One year after. New London, Connecticut newspaper, The Day, runs the front page headline as, quote, a tragedy remembered. On the same day that former Enron CEO was indicted for fraud, survivors gathered at the site of the station to remember the 100 people who lost their lives. Triton Realty Incorporated still owns the land and, due to various legal challenges, the site is still only an unofficial memorial. Two years after. The National Institute of Standards and Technology released their report showing that temperatures inside the station reached 1800 degrees in 90 seconds. Water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level. As Sarah Mancini, the mother of one of the victims, stated, they didn't stand a chance. Two years, seven months after. Saturday, September 24th, 2005. Jeff and Michael Jardarian file for bankruptcy, citing their inability to satisfy their creditors, past, current, and future. Two years, 11 months after, Wednesday, February 8th, 2006. 29-year-old Daniel Beakley the man who touched two wires to a battery to bring a rockin' entrance to Great White pleads guilty to 100 counts of manslaughter. After the plea deal is reached, of which he will serve no more than 10 years in prison, he personally writes letters to the families of each of the 100 victims. So Daniel Beakley writing letters to each of the 100 victims He's got to be feeling just an enormous sense of guilt at this point, just to 
to do that. And that was not part of his plea agreement. He wasn't told to do that. This is something that he did all on his own to try to reach out to them and offer what condolences he could. I mean, after all, he was the guy that did the deed that it started the fire. Also, you have the Jordarian brothers already filing bankruptcy. They know that they are in this for the long haul. It will never leave them their entire lives. So they have to protect what assets they still have. And understandably so, no matter what they may or may not have done, what their intentions may or may not have been, you still have to look out. Uh, they had families, they had children. So you have to protect what's yours. Yeah, I mean, it's a bad spot for everybody. I don't, you can't bring back, unfortunately, writing these letters. It is a nice gesture. I mean, if you can't undo what was done, you can't bring back. Um, the fact that at least somebody got punished, even though I still think that the fire inspector and the fire department did not do a full job, uh, comprehensive investigation or uh, inspection, because I feel like that probably would have caught it. This wouldn't have happened. We do jobs where you can't even drill a hole in a building without a hot one. But you got somebody with pyrotechnics on stage and touching wires together and things have got to be done properly. When they're not, unfortunately, you know, we've seen it time and time again in this situation, in these episodes. And this is what happens. One, you know, multiple bad things on their own. Maybe not the worst thing in the world, but when they're all together, get mass casualty. I just can't get over that uh, 100 counts of manslaughter and served no more than 10 years. So I guess it was all concurrent. But Scott, that's uh, he got off. He got off light. So, like you were saying, Tyler, he he did get out early. He got off kind of easy, actually. In the correctional system, inmates can earn good behavior points, and those good behavior points count towards an early release. And if you're wondering what good behavior is in a prison, it's basically being told uh, exactly what to do. You volunteer to not only scrub your own toilet, but any other toilets that need scrubbing. You do what you're told. You finish your meals. You don't try to hide anything. You're clean. And also sometimes if you provide information to prison staff about other inmates, that can add points. Three years, six months after. Jeffrey and Michael Jardarian, plus their lawyers, prosecutors, and the judge all have a private meeting to discuss the case. Behind these closed doors, Jeffrey agrees to three years on probation and 500 hours of community service. Michael gets four years in the state prison. The deal is meant to spare Jeffrey's children from losing their father to incarceration, and also to spare the families of victims and survivors from reliving the traumatic event all over again. Four years, nine months after. After the Jardarian brothers made a no-contest plea, meaning they accepted punishment but did not admit guilt, Rhode Island Attorney General Patrick C. Lynch was bearing the brunt of public scrutiny. 
Evidence from the criminal case into the station nightclub fire was released to the public to the tune of more than 34,000 documents, 3,000 photos, and 100 hours of video and audio files. I still just can't get over how easy uh, all these guys got off uh, saying, oh, we wanted to spare him or his children of not having a parent growing up. What about the 41 that are never going to get to see their parents again? So give me a break. I don't blame the victims for being outraged. I would be too. I'm outraged and I'm not even associated with this. But that this is just, it's a joke. Yeah, I don't think the punishment fits the crime as it's as saying goes. But even if you put them in jail for their life, it's not going to bring the people back. So it, 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 damned if you do and damned if you don't. There's really no adequate punishment. I know people were outraged that there wasn't a public trial to present the evidence. And the plea agreement system has been in place in our courts for a long time now, and it does have its place. And sometimes under those plea agreements, the prosecutors and the defense attorneys both have to make concessions. It might not be pleasant uh, to the other one, but if it falls within legal guidelines, they can. And I think that's why prosecutors released all of the documents and photos was so that in lieu of a trial, the public and families, victims could all see the evidence that was there and have all the information that would normally be brought out in a trial situation. And that allowed victims, families to process that information sort of on their own. They didn't have to be in the middle of the courtroom and have somebody else display pictures of their loved ones being burned there. They now have the option to not view that. Yeah, I mean, there's as somebody who was the victim of a crime, a violent crime a few years ago, you know, having to, granted it was in a juvenile court, but I had to go into a courtroom and testify and see that kid. And you have enough bad memories as it is, but to not have to do that or a much worse situation that all these people have gone through, there is some comfort there for sure. But they also, personally, I feel like as a whole, they don't do much for the victim. Maybe in a way it would have brought closure, but I think it also probably would have been worse. So it's hard to say. five years after. On the fifth anniversary, the Station Fire Memorial Foundation presents its design for a permanent memorial to stand for all who died and were injured. However, they can't do anything until they possess the land at 211 Coesed Avenue. After all these years, Triton Realty and Raymond Villanova still own it. He says that he wants to wait until all of the court cases are settled before he moves forward with any deal. Five years after. After serving less than two years of his four-year sentence, Daniel Beakley is released from prison. Six years after, Thursday, June 25, 2009. Michael Dredarian was released after serving two years and nine months out of his four-year sentence. Despite family members of the victim speaking out at a hearing in January of 2008, he had earned time for good behavior. 
Judge Legue finds in favor of the plaintiffs in a settlement of $176 million for the families and survivors of the Station nightclub fire. 500 people receive payments ranging from $3,000 to over $7 million. Eight years after, the Station Family Fund suspends operations after having used over $5 million to meet the needs of victims and survivors. Nine years after, after decades, Raymond Villanova finally donates 211 Cohesit Avenue to the Station Fire Memorial Foundation so they can begin building a permanent memorial to the tragedy. Ten years, seven months after, debris has been carefully removed and the land cleared over a decade after the fire. Crosses, pictures, stuffed animals, and other trinkets of memory are respectfully removed and stored. Some of these will be placed in an underground vault at the front gate to the permanent memorial. Eleven years after. Over a decade later, support for the completion of the permanent memorial is stronger than ever. Donations are still pouring in to make sure that the vision for the grounds is fulfilled. People want to make this sacred place last centuries into the future as a reminder. Fourteen years after. On May 20th, 2017, the Station Nightclub Fire Memorial was officially dedicated. One of the unique design elements was an eight-foot wall covered in nearly 100 tile-sized panels, each panel documenting a moment in time leading up to during and after the fire. The words on these panels were the creation of Tom Vial. Tom wasn't at the club that night. He didn't lose anyone close to him in the fire either. However, the 54-year-old man didn't have to look far to find someone from his community that had lost someone. The father of the youngest victim of the fire, 18-year-old Nick O'Neill, had worked with Tom after the boy's funeral, the emotions weighed heavy on Vial, who started volunteering his web design services to the Victims Memorial Fund. His repeating countdown to the fire, count during the fire, and count up after are quite unconventional compared to other disaster memorials. We would be remiss to not say that Tom Vial's timeline that's presented at the memorial did not serve as our inspiration for the way that we presented the story to our listeners. Obviously, we followed a lot of his cues and with a little additional research from us added to it, he didn't have a lot of room to put more details onto these tiles. They are just a few square inches big, but the power that he conveyed through his words, the situation that happened at that night, years leading up to it and the years after, is just very powerful. I hope I get to go see it one day in person. And we only found out about that timeline thanks to a good friend of the show, Anthony. Uh, he's been a longtime supporter of ours, friend of ours. Uh, talk to him often, YouTube, Twitter, wherever it may be. He reached out to us uh, shortly into the Coconut Grove series and said, Hey, you guys should do the station nightclub. And I said, Hey, buddy, that's next. 
And he goes, well, good, because I'm only like 15 minutes away. I'd be more than happy to go to the memorial, take some pictures, do some research, anything to help out. And I said, yeah, we'd love it. So a few days later, he sent us like 40, 50 pictures. And in that, he took detailed photos, probably 10 or 12, of each of those tiles that Tim just talked about. And I thought, man, that is a perfect way to present this story. So that was the outline. I basically transposed everything. Tim added to it, subtracted, whatever. Uh, and it was a, a beautiful way to present this story. So again, thank you, Anthony. I really appreciate it. And we're going to get the rest of those photos out because I've only shared about five or six so far uh, over the next uh, few weeks. Yeah, and uh, we totally encourage everybody to go to 3tumblers.com to check out all the different source material links uh, because there was a lot of research that went into this. Today, the last panel of Tom Vial's narrative simply reads, Today, remember. Tomorrow, Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. The 21st anniversary of a tragedy that should have never happened. The 21st anniversary of 100 people losing their lives. The 21st anniversary of people losing their loved ones. We should all keep their memories alive every time we go into any crowded buildings. Find the doors. Plan your escape. Know more than one way to safety. Don't let your night of fun become your last night alive. Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. Additional research materials provided by Anthony. Find this episode and others along with our source material at 3tumblers.com. This has been a Three Tumblers production, copyright 2024, all rights reserved.